Happy Sabbath, welcome. The year has changed, the calendar breathes anew, the leaves begin to shift colors and are, well, it's still really hot, but at least the promise of a coulon is on the horizon. What we also want is a promise of us being together as we conclude our camp meeting. I hope you all have your Veritas tickets in hand. And as we talk today about being a meek in the midst of the crucible, can I invite you to pray? God, thank you for this amazing camp meeting season. Thank you for all you have done in the lives of people who continue to experience you, whether it's choosing intellectually to follow you, whether it's living and breathing for you in the midst of suffering, whether it's clinging to scripture and saying yes to you, whether it's accepting and assenting that religion, faith still matters, even in our context. We are thankful for all those conversations, and we pray that you continue to bless us as we move on to our new sermon series, and to now the fall. Bless our students as they begin to trickle back into campus. Bless all the things that we are planning for the month of September, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, camp meeting is closing, but uh, we still have Pastor Joey with us, and we're very excited, not only because you're here, but because along with some of our colleagues, you are leading us in thinking about a new sermon series that is starting next week. So how has your camp meeting been? How has your summer been? Isn't it exciting to finally dream about sub-triple digits temperature? <laughs> yes, I love camp meeting. Don't love the heat. <laughs> yeah. No, camp meeting is great, not only because of, of, the, of the worship services, but just because of all the time we spend together, mm -hmm. right? Friday nights and then that you and Pastor Philip have been leading in such powerful ways with other members of our community, um, discussing these very challenging questions, but in a way that really invites people to engage and learn and think for themselves. I, I love that. Um, but also our evening um, activities. Oh, we had great. Heritage Singers last week, um, Drayson Center, uh, I mean, Drayson Center last week, Heritage before then, and then Veritas. Veritas. <laughs> Do you have your tickets? <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, have your tickets? Yeah. <laughs> and Veritas is, uh, when they, whenever they come, they're just so much, I mean, it's just an overwhelming experience right. of sound, it right? And it's incredible. It, and it looks like this this weekend we have, um, It's it seems like they're growing as a mm -hmm. group. They have five, I mm -hmm. think, singers now, which is which is going to be really powerful. You know, the first time, so the first time I saw them, I think you remember, we had Sandy Patty mm -hmm. come to church. And I'm sorry, Joey and I are geeking out a little bit because we're big Her we're big Veritas fans. Um, so Sandy Patty, if you remember, came, and she's great. Sandy Patty's fantastic. 
But then there was this kind of unknown group that opened for her, and they just blew my mind. They actually reminded me uh, of how some people are really touched by God with some amazing talents, and some of us are not. And ever since then, every time they've come, it's it's been magical. Joey, you and I have had a busy week. It's been busy, busy, busy this whole week as we close camp meetings. So busy that we haven't changed the whole week. So if you remember and are wondering why Pastor Joey and I are in our same outfits from last week, that's because, well, that's how busy we've been. But we are nonetheless, none the least excited to talk to you about this uh, quarter's uh, and this week's study, which has to do with meekness. Of all the Beatitudes, mm. I have to say, Joey, meekness was my least favorite. <laughs> because I understood, at least as a kid, that meekness was synonymous with being a pushover. Mm. Did you have any different understandings no. of that? No, that that is exactly right. I used to think of meekness as weakness. Right? Uh. <laughs> it's like... It's the 98-pound weakling that gets bullied and pushed around and doesn't have the ability to fight back, right? That's the picture of meekness we typically have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? what Now I learn as as I'm growing a bit older is not only that meekness is not weakness, but that meekness tends to be one of the Beatitudes that is misappropriated by the church sometimes. So whenever... uh, somebody is complaining and advocating, for example, for better conditions, uh, economic conditions, or more uh, equality, or a better seat at the table, we typically say, no, 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 no. God says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The new Jerusalem belongs to them. But on this rock, that is the third from the sun, strength is what matters, and courage and the capacity to bend the world to your will. I don't think that Jesus talks about meekness in that way. I don't think that Jesus talks about meekness as tolerance, or I think, I I love it, I'm going to use it somewhere at some point in a sermon. Meekness is not weakness, Joey. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Could it be possible that Jesus is actually saying that the only societies that have a chance to flourish on this world are societies that are prioritizing meekness? Because a society that prioritizes exploitation and strength is a society that is always going to be struggling to define who is doing the exploiting and who's being exploited. That's so true. Because if meekness was weakness, then it really doesn't align with what scripture Mm -hmm. describes as meekness, right? Moses is described as the meekest man who ever lived, right? (laughs) Did he describe himself that way? I don't know. But he's described that way. And we know from Moses's life that he was not weak. Right. There are times when he stands up for justice and it it stands against injustice. Mm -hmm. Right. There are times where he orders the Levites to go through and he kill all those people who are unfaithful to God, who who didn't stand on that side of God, on that line of God. 
Jesus is described as meek and mild, but Jesus, I mean, when he stands up on <laughs> and cleans out the temple, that's not weakness, not, right? Not weakness. So there is a there is a disconnect between the way that we typically think of meekness and the way that the Bible seems to describe meekness. Um, and I, so I love what you're saying that um, perhaps um, this meekness that Jesus is describing is not just an individual characteristic, but a societal one that he's saying that this is the, when we value just strength and bending, as you said, bending the world to our will, it creates a society that's broken and mm -hmm. fractured and um, unjust. And I think we we have to be very careful with how we interpret meekness precisely because misappropriating it can lead to a lot of toxicity in our religious conversations. I remember growing up, Joey, and I, it's not like we're that much different in age, so I'm sure you remember the same thing. So growing up, uh, these, this image that, uh, that the church held about who I needed to be as a man was kind of the strong, uh, assertive leader that uh, was able to convince through talent or through strength the world to do what, what he wanted. And so Jesus was often portrayed in that way. And then um, it, that shifted a little bit, right? Um, promise keepers kind of burst onto the scene and this idea of servant leadership burst onto the scene. And I remember um, being in high school and reading some of John Piper and as Piper talked about complementarian and how I needed to lead. And um, there was this, this kind of reorientation of who I needed to be as a man where, yeah, I, I, I don't have to be oppressive but God doesn't want weaklings or gentle souls. God needs strength. And I think that, at least in my mind, created some really toxic views of who I needed to be. And I'm still kind of struggling with deprogramming those and saying, we all have different temperaments. For some, to be meek and mild and gentle and genteel is our natural inclination. And that's okay. God can use that. Because what we're talking about when we talk about meekness, as we said, is not this individual characteristic. It's a societal trait where our first reaction is to ask, what is the loving thing to do? Mm. Yeah, I love that, that our first reaction to is to ask what is the loving thing mm -hmm. to do, not how can I stand up for myself mm -hmm. and stand out for my rights and make sure that I'm not taking mm -hmm. taken advantage of, right? Which does is very countercultural because we're taught what the squeakiest wheel gets, gets the, grease, the grease, right? So we are we are uh, we are taught to um, speak up, stand up, and we're not saying that that's wrong, right? We we've talked last week. You talked about the importance of agency. Right, that that God does give us agency. He does want us to speak up and stand up, but that our priority is love, and not just mm. fighting for our own mm. protection. Yeah. So when um, when you and I were growing up, there was this song that kind of was this countercultural anthem. You've got to fight for your rights. Mm -hmm. And I think now, as as I'm thinking about this particular lesson on meekness. 
I think agency is extremely important because sometimes the loving thing to do is to speak up. But we're not driven towards agency through a desire to have our rights uh, be uplifted or to have our uh, views uh, protected. Um, We are actually speaking up because sometimes speaking up is the loving thing to do. Yeah. And... We, we recognize that sometimes when you show that kind of love for that, for others, there is a potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. There is a p- potential for other people to run mm-hmm. over, which is why the passages we're going to look at today are extremely challenging yeah. when we talk about real world, real life practices. So I'm excited to dive into this. Absolutely. So we're going to go, Joey, I think, to one of the most misunderstood passages as Jesus concludes or hit the first section or the introduction of the best sermon ever preached, mm-hmm. which is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at a pericope or a passage that comprises five verses. Pericope is your big word for the day, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. Um, and those these five verses, I think, are really uh, going to get us in on the right direction uh, as to how to be loving, to be meek, and yet to have firm boundaries that protect ourselves at least, or that protect our society from being a society that prioritizes abuse. Yeah, so let's let's take a look. I'm excited. So he so Jesus begins this whole section, Joey, um, by saying, "Up with the law." Right. It's it's almost as if he's opening the sermon and you've done this. I've done this. Everyone who has spoken or preached at some point has done this. We engage. We pastors are known to engage in a little bit of hyperbole in order to make a point. And so Jesus starts this whole sermon with hyperbole. And the reason he starts with hyperbole, not a jot or an eye should be changed uh, of the law until all all things might pass pass away, but the law is not going to pass away, is because he's about to say something controversial. Mm -hmm. And so he moves us from this hyperbolic introduction to the primary passage, the the thing that he knows is going to be misunderstood. Mm And that is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and on. He says, you have heard it said, the past, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I love how you you began with um, the fact that Jesus is is speaking in these very absolute terms mm-hmm. because he he does he speaks. As, as we read the entire Sermon on the Mount, everywhere he speaks yes. in these very absolutes. And it's, it's, not, it's not because Jesus doesn't know that there are exceptions yes. to these, right? Because Jesus knows. He's a wise man. He actually <laughs> demonstrates exceptions exactly. to a lot of these, right? But he is making a point. And when you're making a point, you want to speak in those absolutes so that people get the seriousness of that message across. So what is the seriousness, intentionality? Why is this so important to God to say, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Why, why, why does Jesus emphasize this so much to his disciples? I think it's because, and you mentioned it right, and I think it's Fred Craddock who says that so in order for sermons to be delivered effectively, mm. they need to be clear. Yeah. He talks about a mist on the pulpit becomes a fog in the pews, right? <laughs> I love that. And so, <laughs> so Jesus is following, I think, homiletics 101. We've got to be clear and we've got to be cutting. So the question is, what is he pushing his disciples to, as you asked, I think, so appropriately? And I think the answer is Jesus is pushing the disciples to a more mature ethic. Mm. Jesus is pushing his disciples to an ethic that is mature. And the ethic that is mature is ultimately meek. Mm. Meekness has to do with maturity. Because what I find, and this is just me, that the moments where I have fought to make my will known, to make my voice heard, to make sure that I am noticed are moments in which I am not sure about my particular position in a group or at work or with friends. If I'm not sure about what role I'm supposed to play, um, I want to make sure that my voice is heard. The more comfortable I am and the more the mature the relationship becomes, I find that the less I feel I need to be kind of this oppressive voice that wants to make sure that is her, that uh, people hear me. And maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Maybe Jesus is saying the more the most mature ethic is a ethic that is meek because it takes risks. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, you said it already. Matthew 5, 43-48 is going to push us to take some really uncomfortable risks. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So meekness is not weakness because meekness doesn't come from a place of I'm not responding because I can't respond because I'm too weak to respond. Mm -hmm. But I choose not to respond in this way. I choose not to fight back and attack back. Maybe attack back is the best word, better yeah. word than fight. I choose not to attack you again in response to your attack to me, not because I'm weak and I can't, but because I choose to love instead. Mm -hmm. And that requires tremendous strength, right? Mm -hmm. More strength, as you as you seem to point out, more strength than actually when somebody slaps you in the face, like Jesus will has described mm -hmm. earlier. When Jesus slap, when someone slaps you in the face, it takes more strength to not slap back than it does to slap back, right? right? I don't know if you've seen this like TikTok trend that they had of um, people filling their mouths with water. And playing rock paper scissors and then slapping each other no. with, with tortillas. No, you haven't seen that. I need a, I need to get on TikTok. Um, I don't know what TikTok is yet, but I'm gonna go on and Google that. Now there's there's this these videos where people will just friends will just um, slap each other with tortillas uh -huh. and then and then try to get them to spit out the water. Right? <laughs> it's just it's hilarious to watch. But I I don't know if I could do that because there's. There's an instinct. If someone slaps you in the face, right. you want to slap back, right? And it takes tremendous maturity, takes tremendous strength to resist that urge right. to slap back, especially if that slap is done with ill intent, oh, right? Yes. And we see the the power of this the strength. I think most dramatically in what like Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. did, right? His um, non-aggressive stand. He fought back without attacking, mm -hmm. and that required tremendous strength 
and allowed him to change a nation, mm. right? Because he didn't attack that. Mm. He chose not to attack. Mm. And um, I, I love what he says. That he says, love is the only power who that is capable of turning an enemy into a friend. Mm. Powerful. And he lived that out in his yes. life, right? And this, he got that ethic from, from, from Jesus, Jesus, right? That he loved it wasn't just a saying for him. He loved his enemies. Mm. He loved his enemies. And in doing so, he was able to transform some of his enemies, not all of them. Right. But some of his enemies into allies. Yeah, some of his enemies shot him from a, from a story <laughs> top a hotel in Memphis. But, I, but your point is well stated and well taken. Um, here's, I think, the... And, and Joey, you and I are going to have to do this tight, high water, tight rope act this morning. Because on the one hand, you do have the call in like, like Martin Luther King and maybe Gandhi of mm -hmm. peaceful resistance, right? Or Gandhi believed that in the heart of the British Empire, and I think Martin Luther King chose to believe that in the heart of most Southerners, there was an ethical principle that he could appeal to. Mm -hmm. Luther King, MLK was asked once to decide what type of ethical framework he was going to follow, whether it was going to be Gandhi's peaceful non-resistance, uh, peaceful resistance, or uh, Bonhoeffer, which was not peaceful. Mm -hmm. And Luther said, and Martin Luther, MLK said, well, it all depends. Mm -hmm. It worked in Britain. I'm not sure that Gandhi's approach would have worked in uh in nazi germany, germany yeah. now all that is to say this i think the ethic of love that ethic that pushes us to make that gives us at least the possibility like you said of making friends and foes into friends is birth out of a rule of life that seeks to ask the question not what benefits me mm -hmm but rather what benefits you. Yeah. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But when it comes to other people getting slapped, mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't turn the other cheek. <laughs> it's true. Because Jesus is driven right by the ethic. Mm -hmm. It's not what benefits me. Yeah. It's what benefits we. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the tightrope. The tightrope is saying, yeah, I wanna protect myself. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that my rights are respected. I want to make sure that my position and my viewpoints are heard. Mm -hmm. But it seems as that Jesus isn't calling us to ensure that our rights are in our property and our viewpoints and everything else is protected. He's asking us to be meek in that sense. Mm -hmm. But meekness also re would require that we stand up and show agency when it comes to other people. Oh, I, I love how you said that. Um, we focus on not what benefits me, but what benefits we, because love really is at the core of mm -hmm. meekness, right? Mm -hmm. Meekness is about love for others. It's not about me going through some thought experiment and, and trying to, you know, strengthen myself by, by resisting my urges to fight back. It's not about me. It's mm -hmm. about we, it's about showing love even to the person who is slapping me mm. in the face, who is forcing me to go the extra mm -hmm. mile. It is, it is 
asking what is the most loving situ lo loving action in this situation mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a non-violent resistance sometimes it is to actually fight back to speak up to stand up right but what what runs through that attitude of of meekness is this non-selfish other-centered perspective and approach to life well i want to pause then and have us both give each other a hand because we managed to do this tightrope act and we got across. It is because it, I think you're right. I think it does require quite a bit of discernment, doesn't it? It's when do I stay silent and turn the other cheek? And when do I stand up and speak? And I think that comes through discernment. Mm -hmm. And discernment is a direct result, again, of maturity, which is why I think Matthew 5.48 ends with one of the most misunderstood invitations yes. in all of the New Testament because Jesus says, be perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of our friends out there who read this text say, see, God is calling me to run this spiritual marathon and the end goal is for me to attain sinless perfection. Mm -hmm. I think you and I are saying that contextually, that's not what Jesus is calling for. What Jesus is actually calling for is to develop a maturity that is a, a spiritual maturity that is able to discern when the most loving thing for us to do is to turn the other cheek and when the most loving thing for us to do is to stand up and advocate for others. Yes, I love that. Because perfection in this context and we take it out of context all the time all the time but perfection in this context is about love mm -hmm. it's about a mature mm -hmm. love that allows us to even love our enemies that's right. that's the perfection that 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 god is calling about it's not about keeping certain rules although the rules themselves at the heart we've talked about this before the core of all of the rules and the guidelines of scripture is about showing love to other people mm -hmm. and sometimes we miss that we keep the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law, which mm. is the law of love, right? So God is calling us to this mature love that allows us to love even people we disagree with, even people that are heinous to us, mm -hmm. even people that we want to just argue with and wring their necks. It <laughs> is to love them and to discern what is loving to them, like you said, and to do what is loving to them. Mm. I'm not sure which one's harder. Those both are pretty difficult to discern the loving thing and to do the loving right. thing. Yeah, those are difficult, difficult, high, high mark things that we're called to do. But I think that so we often have this this thought experiment uh, with a member of our staff. You know, Pastor Philip loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. He reads Bonhoeffer both for fun and as part of his academic uh, pursuits. And Phil and I talk about uh, about kind of these uh, these three different ethical approaches to oppression, uh, where kind of the highlight of meekness is shown in Gandhi and MLK, and something different is shown in Bonhoeffer uh, as he actually uh, participates in the plot to assassinate Hitler. Mm -hmm. And yet, all three of these approaches, I think, and I think Pastor Philip would agree with us, are undergirded by this idea of what's the most loving thing to do. So. Bonhoeffer looks at Hitler and says, for the sake of the rest of the world, I am willing to condemn my own soul. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer didn't justify 
his participation in this plot. Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer thought he was sinning. Bonhoeffer believed that this was a sin. Bonhoeffer was willing to pay whatever penalty uh, God would levy for the sin. Mm -hmm. And yet he still did it because he didn't care about me. He cared about we. And I think those three approaches, which might differ in how they were carried out, um, all can be understood through the lens of a mature faith that says, what is the love in this moment? What is a loving thing for me to do? Wow. That's a, wow. I had no idea that that's what Bonhoeffer's mm -hmm. thought and approach was, but that's in line with what Moses in this lesson in Exodus chapter 32 mm -hmm. does, right? Mm -hmm. He puts himself, he says, God, if you're going to condemn them, Oof. condemn me and my family yes. too, my family and I as well. And that, man, would I say that? Would I say God, if you're going to condemn them, condemn me as well. Mm. That's that. And yet that that's what Jesus does mm. for us. That's what Jesus said is the ultimate approach mm. to love to his 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 followers in in, in John chapter 15. Mm. Right. Um, no great, greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life and not just his life, but his eternal life for his friends. Mm. I mean, that's what Ellen White talks about Jesus doing. Jesus didn't know at Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. He couldn't see past the grave. He didn't know if he would remain in the grave mm. or not. And yet he was willing to do that to save a bunch of people who were willing to kill him. Yeah. Can you believe that? <sighs> wow. And that that language. And Joey, I, I spent so much time uh, this summer living and breathing in uh, Exodus 24 to 32. Um, and it's it's just a really interesting passage, right? Because here you have the construction of the sanctuary, mm -hmm. the realization of God's presence in the midst of his people, and the response that the people have is to limit God. Mm -hmm. So they, they build this calf. And by building this calf, they're actually saying, we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to decide how uh, the relationship, both spiritually and spatially, happens with God. Mm -hmm. And Moses comes down and sees this. And he says, condemn me and my, and my household too. And that is so different, Joey, mm -hmm. than most religious lingo that we hear. Mm -hmm. Because most religious lingo seeks to point out the mistakes that, that we make and then to condemn us from that mistake and then to create a, another people, another group that is insulated from the mistakes because we are holier. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the initial reaction is to separate, not to intercede. And here you find Moses being kind of this precursor of Jesus that says, I care so much about what is good for we that I am committed to intercession. Wow. So are you saying that sometimes our view of the remnant is flawed? Did you say that? You said that. <laughs> that if we think of the remnant, <laughs> if we think of the remnant as a people, who are just concerned about making sure that they're preserved so that God can come 
and take the remnant home that we don't have our priorities straight. Because often when God calls a remnant like that, what he's calling the remnant to do is to be the salt mm. of the earth, is mm. to be the light of the world, mm. is to stand up, stand in the gap and say, God, if they can't come, we won't come either. Is God is God calling us to do that uh, kind Pastor of Pastor Joey's email is J O O H <laughs> at L O U C dot O R G. Um, yes, Joey, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's what we're being called for. Mm -hmm. But you can't get there if you're meek, if you're not meek. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not meek, you're you're gonna say, This isn't fair. Mm -hmm. What about my rights? Mm -hmm. I I deserve this. I was faithful to the end. I where's my crown of life? And yet there's isn't there a parable about that? Isn't there a parable about a bunch of workers who were working out in the field <laughs> and some of them came super late and they got paid the same as the ones who've been working all day? The not the reaction that we want to engage in with every fiber of our being is to say, this is unfair and I need to stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. But that seems to be counterintuitive uh, to what and, and it seems to be counter to what God is inviting the people to do uh, and his people primarily to do, um, both in the Sermon on the Mount and in this passage you just mentioned uh, in Exodus 32. Wow, so true. So what does that look like practically for us? If we are to do that in our time and age, what would that mean for us? How do we practice this kind of revolutionary love, a love for our enemies? I mean, I, th I think of our society. What would it look like mm. if, 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 the, if the Democrats, the liberal Democrats said, um, I, I, I am not going to create an America where I'm only comfortable, mm. but that my conservative, conservative brothers and sisters will also mm -hmm. be comfortable. What would that look like? What would it look like for the Republicans to say the same about mm. the Democrats? What would that look like? Or what would it look like for us as a society to say, as citizens of this country to say, as people who come from immigrants, because all of us were immigrants mm -hmm. at some point in our history, our, our family history, as people who come from immigrants, I, we want to create a society that is, is loving to immigrants in this society. Mm -hmm. What would that look like? And for immigrants to say, what would it look like for me to adjust my perspective so that I can live alongside those? What would it look like for us to have that kind of meekness for the whole society instead of just for me and the people that I define as my people? Well, you started talking about Martin Luther King. Wasn't that the dream? Hmm. I have a dream that one day uh, People, my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by their content of, of their character, mm. that uh, people will sit together at the table of fellowship. Mm. Um, I know what it doesn't look like. Ah, so you know, Joey, in the 1980s, uh, Christian evangelicals kind of started to flex their muscle culturally and politically in our country. And probably one of the most popular Christian evangelicals was Jimmy Swaggart. Mm. Uh, Swaggart had an enormous, uh, enormous, enormous following. And um, there was there was a uh, pastor living and working. Gowen was his was his last name in the same town that Swaggart was, and he had uh, 
uh, Pastor Gowen had engaged in some inappropriate behavior uh, with one of uh, the wives on his uh, uh, one of the wives of a member of his pastoral staff as they were doing some counseling. So I found out, and um, Gowen's church was growing, and apparently um, there's not enough people uh, that need the gospel. So there was kind of this spirit of competition between them. And Swigert demanded his fellow worker uh, resign mm. because he was uh, morally bankrupt. He had failed, which I think we can discuss about uh, that. And I think that's a worthy discussion to have. I think as pastors, we're called to live a higher moral standard. But the problem was that Swigert was also engaging in morally questionable behavior, questionable behavior with a lot of different women. And so he got caught by going. And so at this moment, um, the question becomes, well, what should we do? And so there's, there's, it's, it's a really fascinating story because you can see kind of two men whose ministry was destroyed, um, although Jimmy made it back, um, but whose ministry was destroyed because they wanted to claim the moral high ground. Now, again, I think ministers are called to live by a higher moral standard. But I also want us to recognize that I am irreparably broken and that just because my brokenness isn't seen in... Uh, Ways in which some people out there, um, brokenness is viewed because my sins are more, quote unquote, socially acceptable, doesn't mean they're different. And so I think intercession and empathy um, are are the only way in which we, in which that vision, that dream that Dr. King had for our country can be fulfilled. Maybe that's why. Uh, Matthew says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because what that would look like, with the vision that you just shared with us, that would look like a country that I want to live in. Yeah. And that would look like a country that I think would really be a shining city on a hill, to use some language that has also become politicized, sadly. Yeah. It's true. But what, what keeps us from getting there is that that kind of vision, that kind of making that kind of vision a reality requires sacrifice, right? I mean, Jesus sacrificed in mm. order to come to be with us. Um, Moses offered his himself, his life and his family's life as a sacrifice in order to say to God, if they can't come, I won't come to Ezekiel. The study that we're doing that that we we also study in this pat this this um lesson ezekiel he loses everything as a as like a um metaphor for the people in order to get god's point across that so that some in in it for with through his suffering some people might awaken to the reality of their sin ezekiel sacrifice so going down this road if we're going to really create for example like a nation where um, 
Republicans and Democrats, trying not trying to get political here, but as an example, um, will be able to work together to create a, a nation that there is something that's comfortable for everyone mm. means that each also have to sacrifice something, mm -hmm. right? And so that's not that's not easy to say because, like you said, the very fiber of our being wants to fight to get as much as I want and to protect myself as right. possible. And yet meekness calls us to another way. And the problem, I think, is that not only do we need to be meek, um, we need to be relentless. Hmm. Because meekness also demands this relentless capacity to keep going. Hmm. Um, I'd love to say that racism and racial injustice ended with the death of, of Martin Luther King. Um, but sadly, uh, 60 years later, we still are in a deeply racially divided country and it just looks different. And the people that, it, it must be really exhausting to be one of those people um, that marched with Dr. King and to 60 years later see that dream as being unfulfilled, yet we are relentless in our pursuit mm. for racial equality. We are relentless in our pursuit for calling out both parties in the political system when they're failing. Yeah. Um, we are relentless in our recognition that we too are part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I think that's what really jumped out the, in, in the Ezekiel story. Uh, so you all read your lesson, hopefully. If not, we're talking about Ezekiel chapter 24. So Ezekiel's wife dies, right? And God commands Ezekiel to forego all of the common uh, practices that somebody in mourning would do in order to take a message of mourning to, to Israel. Mm. And what really struck me, Joey, I don't know if you caught it when you were reading through this passage, but um, verse 18 of, of chapter 24 says, so this is, by the way, after God has commanded Ezekiel, don't do don't cover your master. leave your shoes on. Don't eat the food that you are supposed to eat when you are mourning. Um, and it says, so I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening that my wife, my wife died. The next morning I did, I did as I had been commanded. So he goes out and he delivers this message. And the people asked me, won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? Why are you acting like this? Mm. Often uh, the reaction to meekness is, well, that's somebody else's problem. That's mm. not my problem. I'm not part of the problem. I'm part of the solution. Look, I, you know, I've got friends who are Republicans and I got friends who are Democrats. I love this idea of ro racial uh, justice. I love the idea of economic equality. It has nothing to do with that. That's for some other broken people back there. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Moses and Ezekiel and Jesus is that they all realize that meekness demands that you not only try to find solutions to the problem, but that you accept responsibility that you are in the problem, mm -hmm. that the problem belongs to you as well, that you are part of the problem even if in some cases you've done nothing to create the problem. Yeah. 
And that's that that was initially my struggle with what happened with Ezekiel, because initially I thought, man, I mean, God says the word of the Lord, verse 15, the word of the Lord Mm -hmm. came to me, son of man, with one blow, I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Right. That is so problematic for me. And then his wife dies. Yeah. And Notice so, that we are not doing exegesis on that part <laughs> of, the, of the chapter. So, I mean, we're not going to discuss that in length because that would take the whole lesson. But, but it's a struggle for me because, man, um, Ezekiel, in order to send this powerful message and save these people, he loses his wife. Mm. Now, whether it was already going to happen and 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 God just used this as an example or God actually took the life of his wife we can we can talk about that at a later date but that that was a challenge for me but what it does show is that just like what you just said that even when it's not even when we are not um we don't see ourselves as being a part of the problem we identify with the problem mm. and we accept responsibility for it because we are part of the we mm-hmm. and it's not just about me. Oh, we are part of the we and that's not, and it's not just about me. That is, I think, a beautiful way to close this lesson on meekness. Joey, can you pray so that we conclude here? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being willing to identify with us. You could have said, Earth, the choices Adam and Eve and their descendants made, it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. You could have written us off and moved away and let us implode on our own. And yet you didn't. You chose to identify with us, Mm. to make our problem your problem, and to make, to be a part of that solution, even when it required such incredible sacrifice from you. And as your followers, we ask for the courage to do the same, to be truly meek, and to love even our our enemies is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this weekend, we just want to tell you that both Joey and I and you and yours are all part of God's we. May he keep you until we meet again. Mm -hmm.